Happy Saturday. It's February 26th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. And welcome to Saturday. Well, let's get right to it, Michael. We have a lot to talk about this week. The big news, obviously, is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And we have none other than Alessandra Stanley, our illustrious co-editor, here to make some sense of this all. Now, Alessandra was the New York Times bureau chief in Moscow soon after the fall of the Soviet Union. So she has some really unique insight into what exactly is going on and what we should be making of all this. So let's bring her on now and get to the matter at hand. Welcome, Alessandra. Thank you. Obviously, Alessandra, the news is moving so quickly. So you covered the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union. You obviously knew of Putin. How do you look at this week and where things are moving? Obviously not in good a good direction. But the thing that's striking about this, you know, we keep saying, you know, it's the biggest conflict in Europe since World War II. But it's also... The, the only conflict I can think of where it isn't sectarian, you know, it's not like Northern Ireland where it's Protestant against Catholic or it's not Kosovo and Bosnians and Serbs. It's Orthodox versus Orthodox. And they're really the very same people. So I think that the the kind of dissonance, of, dissonance for soldiers on either side is going to be tough. And it's going to be really, really tough for, I think, Putin to, to keep explaining why this is necessary. I think the protests we've been seeing all over Russia are extraordinary and such a good sign because, you know, there's no there's no right to protest. So these people are really taking big risks to to let Putin know how they feel. And that's a hard the hardest thing to do when your country has just invaded another sovereign country. So I mean, the situation is terrible, but um, it doesn't mean it's going to stay terrible. How do you think the economic sanctions and the other non-militaristic responses that the U.S. and other countries have made are affecting Putin and Russia, if at all? Oh, I don't know. And, you know, everyone said, you know, it's going to take time. And if it does at all, I'm I'm less concerned. I mean, we have to do it. But I think for for Putin, the problems are going to come more from home. You know, it's not just the unrest. I mean, the very fact that Alexei Navalny is alive and in prison and was able to you know, in a court appearance, make his views on the invasion known and blaming Putin for being like Stalin is amazing in that country. And the fact that he can't control that, he's proven he's not afraid of killing people, especially his own people. And yet there's there's dissent at this very moment is, um, is heartening, I think. Is there any way that we could interpret this potentially as a best case scenario being Putin's last gasp? Well, that's what that's that's the hope, right? That he cannot survive. You know, it's one as as George W. learned in Iraq. You know, it's one thing to invade uh, a country that's weaker militarily; it's another thing to hold on to it. You know, it's hard to believe he wouldn't have thought through the consequences, but it's possible he really hasn't. You know, the isolation and arrogance has kind of blinded him to what what happens in the next months and years. In 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 that isolation and arrogance, we've talked at different times about the. Putin in the last two years under COVID, do you think he has, from your perspective, uh, undergone a personality shift with too much time alone or, or you know? I don't know, but people in Russia certainly think so, including someone, and Rifkin, who's written for us. Um, that's the word, right? That he doesn't see anybody anymore. And he, I mean, you can tell from the long tables that he doesn't get close to anybody, but that even when he's off in uh, his country estate, he doesn't receive people. Some leaders don't listen to anybody, but at least there are people around them voicing some dissent that can kind of filter through. Uh, He's not hearing a thing except his own, you know, grandiosity in his own head. You know, it's changed everybody, um, COVID, over the last two years. And it 
couldn't not have changed him, made him more himself, put it that way, the worst part of himself. You mentioned earlier, I mean, again, I think you're framing about that it is, this is an invasion of a sovereign country, not inter-country inter, um, um, conflict. Did you travel to the Ukraine when you were? Oh, sure. Yeah, but it was on its knees at the time. You know, I mean, Russia was on its knees and, and Ukraine was even, <laughs> even deeper on its knees. I mean, it was just, it's hard now to imagine just how devastating that was. The economy had completely collapsed. The entire, you know, communist system had collapsed. And so many people were left just hanging, you know. So, and Ukraine, it was particularly bad. So the fact that it's come as far as it has is astonishing. But, you know, when Putin talks about denazification, he's really talking about decommunization, right? I mean, he's he's still hanging on to a system of, of authoritarian rule that Ukraine has gotten away from. Some press outlets are saying that we're entering a new world order. Is that a little bit of an overstatement? I think that's a little early. I, what we were saying before, it was a new world disorder. I think we don't know anything for now, but I don't think there is a new world order yet. You know, I think we're going to see what happens in the next days and months. Putin alone can't change the equation, right? NATO is there. He can't change that for now. You know, I think it's dangerous to start saying, you know, this is this is a whole new paradigm. I don't think it is yet. Why is he so obsessed with Ukraine? Because it is, to him, really, it is part of Russia. And I have to say, I've lived in Russia. And to me, it was really more Russian than, you know, it was very hard. It, at that point, it had declared independence, but it wasn't independent. And for his generation... There was no independence for Ukraine. It was unthinkable. I mean, Putin's not alone. I had friends who were who were enlightened, educated people who couldn't get used to the idea of Latvia being independent because to them, growing up, it had been their Martha's Vineyard. You know, they would go there in the summer for vacation. And the idea that somehow it'd be Martha's Vineyard to be an independent country seceding from Massachusetts. So it, it it was it was hard for a lot of Russians. And I think Putin, because of his KGB background and his stubbornness and his arrogance and his rage and, you know, all that, uh, finds it particularly hard to accept. I think he genuinely doesn't believe this is something that Ukraine did on its own. He wants to believe that this is just the West trying to um, undermine Russia. We have a story on the issue from Will Cathcart. And what's Will's situation over there? Will Cathcart is this great young man from, and he lives in Tbilisi, Georgia, and he went to Ukraine. And unfortunately for him, but interestingly, he got caught in the, he went to um, right near the border with the Crimean. And the Russians, I think, were coming from the from Crimea, and he got caught in the crossfire and had to take refuge in some barn overnight while the Russians were bombarding and the, the two sides were exchanging shells and mortar shells and sniper fire and everything else. So he had a very scary night. and He'd actually, the poor guy, he actually filed his story to us. He didn't want to open his laptop because he was afraid it would draw sniper fire if they saw the light in the barn. So he got under a blanket and typed out his story on his iPhone and sent it in, which I thought was very noble. But it's, an inter- it's just a very interesting, very close-up look at what it's like when suddenly a war breaks out. Do you have a little bit of FOMO that you are not in Russia right now and uh, covering this? Not I am just so glad I'm not there because I don't think I could type <laughs> type on my phone fast enough. <laughs> I don't think I could cover it. We had sat phones back in the day. I would like to go to Moscow just to talk to people. I don't I don't want to go to Ukraine right now. All right, more on this to come. Thank you so much for your time. You bet. Talk to you later. Bye. 
All right. Well, contrary to what we might be reading, there are other stories in the news, and we do have some of them here to talk about today, Michael. Most importantly, tell me about this Brangelina for the Gen Zers. I mean, like, talk about a contrast. Talk about a contrast. Well, you know, some things are breaking up, some things are coming together. And yes, you know, this is about one of the lighter, more fun stories in the week, which is the Brangelina for Gen Z. Yes. Without further ado, when we say Brangelina of the Gen Zs, who are we referring to? Good question. We are referring to Tom Holland, who, for those of you who've been living under a rock, he is just starred in the sixth highest grossing film in history, Spider-Man No Way Home. And in it, he was embracing one of his co-stars, Zendaya. And you may know her from Euphoria, but she also has become the youngest woman to win an Emmy for lead actress in a drama series for you, for you. And she's also been in the recent hit Dune, which is nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards. But what's fascinating is between them, they have what's really valuable, which is 189 million Instagram followers, but their films have made more than $2.4 billion at the box office last year. And also, Michael, like, Brangelina is not necessarily something that this couple should aspire to, right? Like, it was all well and good, and then ultimately it all went to hell. I know I had to even Google last night, is Brad Pitt even divorced yet? And of course he's not. He's like, they're still, it's like six years into this. That's on track to become, from what I've heard, the most expensive divorce in Hollywood. Well, now they're squabbling over the latest at Chateau Miraval. Did you see that this week? So Angelina sold her stake in Chateau Miraval without giving Pitt the right of first refusal or some type of right to swoop in and buy her out of it. So now Brad has spent the past decade or so, maybe even longer, cultivating this wine business in the south of France. And now he has some random investor, someone who has a lot of experience in spirits, but still trying to control the situation and he is not happy about it. Yeah, it's like selling the family business to a person you've never met before who then is a 50-50 partner, right? Yeah. You know, I was so judgy about Chateau Miraval, like, oh, I'm not going to drink this celebrity rosé brand. It's good. I like it. Anyway, we've got Zendaya and Tom Holland. Don't be looking for them to end before they've even begun. Okay. I mean, my heart goes out to them. It's got to be difficult to sustain a relationship in Hollywood, especially when you've got two power brokers like those two. And they're both great. They're both great actors. She's incredible. I mean, as a fashion person, she's pretty amazing. I mean, did you see the new campaign she's in for Valentino? It's incredible. I did. I, of course, like her just for her performance in The Greatest Showman, a movie which I really loved. Have you seen Euphoria? <sighs> okay. Brooke is watching Euphoria. I've watched one episode. It scares the crap out of me because I'm like, is this who's going to be running the country in 20 years, this generation? Have you watched it? No, I've watched a couple episodes. Someone who's going to eventually have teenagers, I found it too frightening. So I just decided to abstain. Already losing enough sleep as it is. Thanks, guys. Look, I've seen one I've seen of Zendaya in it. She's fantastic and deserves that big win of an Emmy. All right. Well, we should probably move on from Hollywood, although there are a lot of good films and television. Well, you know what? Speaking of Hollywood, our perfect ending questionnaire this week was filled out by Stephen Fry, actor, director, writer, comedian, documentarian. I don't know what this guy doesn't do. I mean, Stephen Fry was most recently, he was among those leading the charge to make sure that the Honersfield Library, which is a collection of rare books, most of them British, were kept off of the auction block and so that the collection was kept together intact. And he did that successfully. He was on the podcast back in August. If you want to go re-listen to that episode, it's a great one. So it's good to have Stephen back in the issue this week. And he is talking about his favorite people, places, and things in our perfect ending column. And we are also looking forward to his performance in The Dropout, which is a new Hulu series chronicling the tale of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Stephen Fry plays Ian Gibbons, who was the British biochemist who served as the chief scientist of Theranos after working in over 30 years in the industry. And 
the evening before he was required to testify in a lawsuit about Theranos' technology, he intentionally overdosed in a suicide attempt, and he died of liver failure several days after that. So really tragic story of a, someone who was once a well-respected scientist, and I'm sure that Stephen is going to play him with an incredible amount of nuance and intelligence. Can't wait to see that. Well, we have another addictive issue of airmail this week. Michael, where shall we begin? Okay, I was just thinking about, I was saying the Brangelinas of the world, but you know, and you're saying like they've got problems. We've got another fun story this week, a bit of reporting from Stu Heritage out of London. I think this one is right up your alley. Tell us about it. Surely we're talking about the Beckhams. The Beckhams, who used to be able to bend it, now they're kind of seem to be breaking a lot of things, right? Oh, it's hard to be a Beckham. I mean, they've been in the public eye for, what, nearly 30 years at this point? Like, when did the Spice Girls first come onto the scene? And now we're not only subject to the trials and tribulations of Victoria and David in their various business enterprises, but we also have the kids now to deal with. So in the past few weeks, we've seen a lot of unfortunate news coming out of the Beckham camp. We have first... Updates on Brooklyn Beckham. He has a cooking show called, guess what? Wait for it. Cooking with Brooklyn. It's kind of difficult to see because it airs on this television channel that can only be accessed through Facebook's instant messaging service, which I'm pretty sure no one uses except for my mother. So therefore, it doesn't have much prestige, but there you go. It turns out that each one of these episodes reportedly costs $100,000 to make, which seems like a lot for an eight-minute-long video of a guy watching someone else make a sandwich, but there you have it. But as Stu writes, this is just another perfect example of the Beckham's predicament. So their glory years are well-documented. We had one of the world's most intimate and footballers marrying a Spice Girl. This created some type of license to make money. At one point in 2017, their wealth was estimated at $640 million, so not bad. But not everything has gone so swimmingly. Beckham has tried to focus on his endorsements and investments and all those sorts of things. And he even had a cannabis skincare line called Cellular Goods. Unfortunately, that lost money. This month, he let go of his controlling stake in the Walmart Castle, which is a Notting Hill pub that he paid $4 million for back in 2018. And his sporting career, you know, he struggled quite a bit. So there you go. What's fascinating is you mentioned like they're worth $640 million as recently as five years ago, which was $178 million more than the queen. Is that before or after she bailed out Prince Andrew? Wow. Okay. Shots fired. We don't know. By the way, let's keep her in our thoughts. She's, she's sick these days. But back to these two people. David Beckham post his career, he sort of was trying to do this, almost make the Michael Jordan kind of move and get into a lot of different things. It's been spotty. He joined the LA Galaxy. He tried to raise his profile in American soccer. Didn't work so well. But really what's fascinating about him is no matter, as Stu points out, whatever losses he's incurred, they pale in significance next to those of Victoria and her fashion world, right? Oh, you know, she's struggled with the old fashioned business. She's had investors that haven't worked out quite as she thought. But like fundamentally, people don't dress like that anymore, right? The super tight sheaths that she was known for, and they were ridiculously expensive. And to me, they always looked like a knockoff Roland Marais. But people like her lower price line, apparently, which is selling pretty briskly these days on sites like Net-A-Porter. And I actually sometimes do see some cute things there. But this is something that she just pumped money into because she wanted to be seen as a force in the fashion world. She had varying degrees of success there, but if you want to take another celebrity path to glory in this field, look at the Olsen twins with the row. I mean, Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen have really built something incredible with that brand, and it turns out they have a lot of design prowess. Victoria never really got there, but she tried. But I find what's interesting as well about 
Beckham is, as Stu points out, thanks to all this financial uncertainty. He's got his hand out to some dodgy people for accepting money now. Just goes to show you, everyone's got their hand out these days. Well, what I don't understand is at what point do you just cut your losses and try to protect whatever shred of integrity remains in your personal quote unquote brand? These are people who five short years ago were worth over $600 million. Like, is that not enough? Can't you just take a back seat and invest some of it in crypto and give some of it away and focus on raising your kids and not trying to push them out as pop stars like they're trying to do now with Cruz? I mean, great. Maybe he has a bright future ahead of him. Who knows? But isn't the point of having this much money, having the freedom to say no to things? And it says they just keep saying yes. Well, and also, why not cut back the spend? What's your burn rate every month? And if it's that high, maybe something's out of whack and you don't need to, yeah, you've got to keep bringing money in, but maybe you need to sell one of the properties or rather than having to whore yourself out for crap that just lowers your profile, right? Right. Like I understand when Lindsay Lohan is doing this nonsense, right? But the Beckhams, like you guys have got plenty of cash. You've worked a long time. Sit back, enjoy retirement, do some good with your money instead of trying to be so self-serving with it all the time. The whole thing just strikes me as kind of gross. And the cooking with Brooklyn thing, did you see, it reminds me of one of Tom Hanks's son was recently like out there like half whining, half taking responsibility. Like I never had a strong male role model growing up. That was crazy. That was really crazy. It's what I call these members of the Lucky Sperm Club. All of a sudden people are listening to them because of their last name, because of their parentage. But then it's just like, dude, then suck it up and take responsibility. We're big believers here in having a private life. And I think some of these Hollywood children, like, guys, what is this quest for fame and notoriety really all about? Like, sit back, do some interesting work. Michael and I will talk about it when you do. I don't know what else to say. It seems like we're in this toxic cycle of self-promotion that has no end in sight. And it's just going to get bigger in the metaverse. Uh, Okay, we're not talking about Mark Zuckerberg today. Life is too short. Let's move on to something else. All right. So instead of delving into Zuck and Facebook and the metaverse, which frankly is not somewhere I ever want to be, let's talk about somewhere we do want to be, which is on the beautiful island of Sicily. Yeah. And by the way, let's talk about what you could do with some money if you were the Beckhams or Zendaya. And because what's our fantasy, Ashley? Our fantasy is to maybe buy a nice house in Italy and have that as the summer escape, right? doesn't have to be nice. It can be run down and you can purchase it for a euro, as many people have done in the town of Sambuca, which is a lovely little spot in Sicily that had seen its population really decimated. It used to have a population of 9,000 and then it dwindled down to 5,000. So the government took matters in hand and said, we're going to sell off these empty rundown houses for one euro each as a way of getting second homeowners throughout Europe to not only come and live there, but also to create an influx of cash into the economy. And it's worked with some middling success. With some middling success. The idea is like you get the property for a euro, but then you have to restore it, renovate it, fix it up, which gets you tied to the community and pump some money into it. So it's had some success. People like Lorraine Bracco, Dr. Melfi from The Sopranos, bought a house there, documented that in a video series. Would you do this? Would you do it? Would you do it? I'm foolish enough that I absolutely would. But the problem I would encounter that many people have already seen is that it turns out you sort of need to speak Italian if you're going to be undergoing a home renovation overseas. This is a challenge that's been documented by several great books. My Year in Provence by Peter Mayle is one. uh, And then also in Francis Mays' classic Under the Tuscan Sun. These things are challenging. It's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that you have to put into these types of projects. And I think it's really well suited to a retiree or someone who can spend a significant portion of their time over there managing the brass tacks of these projects. But in many ways, it's created a really interesting new community and I'm sure is incredibly rewarding for those who are brave enough to undertake it. So we salute you. And if you'd like to invite us over for a little aperitif, we're there. Do you know anyone doing the golden visa? This is the real way to live abroad. Portugal, for instance, if you buy 
a property there. And I think you have to buy a property worth a certain amount of money. You can then get citizenship in the country without renouncing your American citizenship, right? It's like you get a Portuguese passport, which gives you access to the EU without having to renounce. You can get dual citizenship. I know some people are doing this as a sort of hedge to have an option for dual citizenship eventually. So it gets you out of dealing with visa issues and that sort of thing? That's the appeal? Yeah, and the collapse of a government that you, next time there's an attempted coup or something, you've got a place to go. You know, who would have thought that these would be things on our radar? But it turns out that's where we are in 2022. I'm actually in conversation with people like, well, you know, I wouldn't be doing it, but I want to give the kids an option in case things go belly up here in the U.S. I'm like, are we really at this point? I'm having like people like, isn't this like sort of in the 1950s, you build a a bomb shelter in your backyard because you think, well, but I guess this is the state of people's minds sometimes after three years, four years, seven years of Trump administration, COVID, you're just like, I don't know, I guess I should have a plan B, C, and D. Well, this is a matter that Doug McGrath tackles somewhat indirectly this week in our View From Here column. He takes a very hardline stance against the GOP and its evolution. He finds very little to redeem them in terms of their behavior over the past administration and also over the past years of the Biden administration. It's a heady, provocative read. It will give you a lot of fodder for your next dinner party. And we highly suggest you take a look. Speaking of matters strange and disturbing, we've got Rich Cohen on to talk about the story that's on everyone's minds and infiltrating everyone's psyches, which is the, what are we calling her? The bad mom of Greenwich? The bad mom of Greenwich. I mean, we were talking about euphoria earlier, Ashley. This is kind of like the blue blood wasp version of a storyline inside of euphoria. If it weren't set in Southern California, if it were set on the suburb of Westchester in Connecticut, this would be one of the storylines, right? Every parent's nightmare. It couldn't be crazier. Well, let's get Rich on here to explain what we're talking about and break it down so you as parents at home listening can have a breakdown when you hear about this one. The Bad Mommy of Greenwich, Connecticut. First of all, okay. walk us walk us through this story. Who is this woman at the center of it? Well, she seems like she's a very wealthy woman who lives in a very big house on the Long Island Sound in Greenwich. And she has four kids spread out in age. And um, she seems a recognizable figure from my own childhood on the North Shore of Chicago, which is what I'd call the cool mom, where the parties are where you can actually drink in the house instead of down at the beach. You sort of flock to that house because it's kind of anything goes, but everything comes with a price. That's how I'd put it. And in this case, the price is? If you hook up with your girlfriend or something's going on in a room or somewhere in the house, there's a chance you're getting filmed and watched later, and who knows what's going to happen to those films. It's kind of like a big nightmare. It's the kind of thing you hear about the suburbs, but you don't really believe it's true. It's kind of into David Lynch territory. It's like blue velvet. What do we know about the ages of her kids and the setup for this child pornography scheme? Well, the case itself was sealed, you know, apparently to protect the underage victims. So we don't know a ton. What we know is that her kids, three of them are grown um, and one of them is a minor. And we don't exactly know for sure who these people were at the house, but presumably they were her kids' friends. That's what I would think, her kids' friends. Well, I hate to ask you to spell it out, Rich, but what exactly was her objective here? Well, it's like in the, you got to use your imagination to some degree because it's sealed, but the judge and the court filings said it was used, I don't remember the exact language, but basically to be watched later and excite the person who had recorded it and possibly other people. So it's sort of like this, you know, it's like child porn, basically. It's like illicit pornography of people hanging around the house. So 
I don't know. I mean, I think it's sort of on the surface, which is she was whatever she was seeing these making these kind of products that were uh, for her own use. I would think you got the sense from the court filing that some of these had gotten out and people had people knew about it. And some people knew about it in Greenwich. And, you know, I, I don't know what to say about it, except it's it's just kind of like something you hear about as a rumor when you're a kid and you don't believe and then it turns out to be true. How does her ex-husband factor into all of this or her soon to be ex-husband? Well, she's in the middle and right in the middle of a contentious divorce. It's still going on and she has a court date. She's in prison right now uh, for and She hasn't even really been sentenced yet. See, just the minimum sentence is 90 days, I think. And um, she's already serving those first 90 days, but at some point in the next two months, she's supposed to appear in court for the divorce where they're battling over the custody of the youngest kid and all the other things you battle for in divorce. And if you read the, some of the divorce stuff, which has become public, it seems it was a very contentious divorce where it seems that private detectives were hired by each side to sort of get leverage on the other. And it's possible that it was in the course of this divorce that this came out. That's how I think it factors in, which is when a divorce becomes ugly and contentious, everything gets aired. And this came out with the rest of the laundry, put it that way. Just to be, I guess, we, the name of the woman, it's public. It, her name is Hadley Palmer. Her, her name is Hadley Palmer, and her husband's name is Bradley C. Palmer. And uh, her father was a sort of started one of the first hedge funds. He's from Ohio, Cincinnati came to New York, worked on Wall Street, started one of the first hedge funds, became very rich and moved the family out to sort of the gold coast of Fairfield County, Connecticut. And the father ultimately had a second life writing. He wrote a novel late in his life, lived in Westport. And the husband is another financial guy. He started another one of these financial firms. And this is a couple that's sort of big society couple in Connecticut on the sort of party circuit. So if you Look them up online. What you're going to find are not news stories, but party pictures of them at every kind of charity function and party. You know, it is sort of like another lesson to me of you never really know anything about anybody. You know, you see people in these pictures, you see them in the paper and you form a certain opinion of them. But what really is going on inside their house, literally in this case, inside their head is a mystery. And this couple, when they split, obviously, some of that came spilling out. And to be clear, Richard, I mean, the kids she was filming, teenagers, as you said, you know, it is that David Lynchian quality. And I know things are sealed, but it seems to me from reading what you've got here is it was almost like, hey, you kids want to go make out? Go use the room downstairs, right? They were not willing participants in this filming, right? No, no. That, that part was made public by the judge, which is, that this was people didn't know this had happened. They didn't know they'd been filmed. It was secret hidden cameras. And as you know, having been a kid, both of you, one of the big things when you're in high school, when you're living with your parents, if you live in the suburbs, I grew up in the suburbs, is looking for places to do things you're not supposed to be doing. You go to those, and usually that tends to be some some place where somebody's parents are out of town or a party. I'm talking about sex, drinking, drugs, all the things you're not supposed to be doing. And it seems to me that what this person offered was a place to do the things you're not supposed to be doing. And partly because it seems that she had a, she was interested in seeing it herself and set up this fake, fake camera, I mean, these hidden cameras somewhere in her house. So 
one of the reasons why this is sealed because people were angry that it was sealed because these things, these kind of things happen. And if you look up court filings, you'll find cases like this and it's never sealed. And all the details are out there, but in this case it was sealed and it seemed to people that the very, very rich people have a different set of rules that she was being protected. There's been a lot of criticism about that locally, but it was very, uh, the judge tried to make the case or made the case that it was not about protecting Hadley Palmer. It was about protecting the, ki- the, the victims, especially the one victim for sure that was under 15. I would love to know what the, you know, cocktail party conversation in Greenwich is like right now. I mean, it seems like this woman was such a known quantity and this family was such a known quantity. I mean, how is a scandal rocking that community? Well, I mean, you can just imagine that if you you live in a place that you think you've moved there for a bunch of reasons for status and for space. And but one reason is for safety. And so it's shocking because you think you're raising your kids in this very safe place. It's it's not safe. I mean, in, in a different way, it's very dangerous. The places that seem like the sheltered places are sometimes the most dangerous places. So, you know, the gossip is of the people being interested, titillated, shocked, and also kind of horrified. But it all goes back, as you and Ashley have said, to beware the cool mom, right? It's always the one, well, you know. Just put it this way. Like, as an adult now, I don't want to hang around with kids. I mean, and my parents didn't want to hang around with us. I mean, they like to be with their family, but they didn't want to be with my friends ever. You know, they, they went out to get away from us. They went on vacations to get away from us. Any adult that is too interested in hanging out with the kids is something to keep an eye on. There's something not right there. It's interesting when you get to be an adult and you have kids, then you can look back at your life and say, look back at the parents, your friends' parents, and understand them in a new way and understand all the time, if you're lucky, that you just missed dangerous situations, which you didn't think were dangerous at the time at all. But these weird situations you were in, you didn't really understand. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's a very human thing and you see it in a very, very rich place. And um, you realize that these are like human problems that never go away. And with the rich place just shows you that all the things you pay to get away from are there too. It's like the another literary reference, the Edgar Allan Poe story, which I've thought about the last couple of years, the Mask of the Red Death about the plague, which is you lock yourself up in your castle, but it's already inside. And that the plague is already inside. And that's what I feel like. You, this is like a castle in Greenwich and the families lock themselves up, but the plague is already inside. On that fairly depressing and dark note, Rich. <laughs> Sorry, uh... When you come across it, this story, it's like an unbelievable story because it really is one of these American stories like Tom Wolfe would make novels out of because it's got everything. I mean, you've got wealth, you've got class, and you think of Greenwich, Connecticut's become so rich, and it's this old money place, but it's filled with all these people that came from other places, like her, like Hadley Palmer's father, who rose up, you know, through America and became rich and kind of lived their dream, but they still wind up with themselves, I guess is what I'm saying. And it's just sort of, and as somebody else said to me, you know, for her, the fall must be so, because they went to great lengths to keep this out of the news and to seal this for whatever reason. And now she's on the sex registry, the sex offender registry for the rest of her life. And whatever her punishment is, her fall from grace is about as massive in her world as you can imagine. Well, I can't wait to keep reading about this, Rich. No doubt that you're going to be covering it for us, and we hope to have you back on again to discuss it in more detail. All right, Rich, thanks again. Have a great day. Thanks. 
All right, Michael. Well, that might have been the stuff of nightmares, but I know you can give us something that is the stuff of dreams. So before we go off gently into that good night, tell me anything to recommend. I have two things. One is something you can do in the theater this weekend, just to remind everyone. It's the 50th anniversary of The Godfather coming out. And in honor of it, they've brought it back to the theaters. If after all these years, you've only seen it on your home screen, take the opportunity, see it on the big screen, see it as the operatic masterpiece that it is. It's a fresh print. I think your mind will be blown as it always will be when you take in that film. The second is I wanted to recommend a book that came from Garrett Graff. It's Watergate, A New History. I think it's great to see this book. Garrett wrote a fantastic book about 9-11 called The Only Plane in the Sky. This one came out recently, and its subtitle is A New History of Watergate. It's riveting. You know, he gets down to great granular detail about the criminals, the hatchet men who populated Nixon's inner circle. And, you know, as a former editor at Politico, he's got great sourcing. I think it's a lively book that just explores the whole dramatic scope of Watergate for a new generation. So highly recommend that as, as a good riveting read. Um, I have a book to recommend, and I suspect that at least half of our listeners have read it because many of you all are based in the UK, our home away from home. Have you read Old Filth, Michael? No, but that sounds like uh, it's going to be my rap handle when I'm an older man. <laughs> DJ Old Filth. DJ, it's not a bad idea. Uh, Old Filth follows the story of Sir Edward Feathers, who was a barrister in Southeast Asia and then returned to London. The nickname Old Filth uh, was attributed to him, in fact. It was an acronym for... Failed in London, try Hong Kong. And we find him when he's 80 years old and living in Dorset. And now that he's been free from work and the trappings of daily life, he has time to reflect on what was in many ways a difficult childhood. And I won't say too much else, but uh, if you're looking for a novel with plenty of action, but also plenty of heart, I highly recommend it. It's, it's Old Filth by Jane Gardam, the first book in the trilogy. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. It's been wonderful to have you here. We wish you a wonderful week full of no nightmares like the ones Rich Cohen just described. And Michael, on that note, will you please read us out? Absolutely. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which is updated every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us.